Welcome to the London First Baptist Church podcast. This is the Sunday morning service from January 6th from Pastor Brett Cottrell. On a, on a Sunday like this, a, a week like this, we tend to, we're looking at the new year. 2019. I remember a year, I remember a day when 2019 seemed like a long ways away. <laughs> And when we think of a new year, when we think of the things in front of us, there's lots of images and perhaps things that come to mind. Maybe you've set some resolutions. I stand before you a man with really sore legs this morning because I worked out for the first time in six months on Friday. Man, climbing up these stairs is some work right now. We have goals. We have things we're looking at. We have things that we're striving for. You have, Sarah, perhaps goals or things you're striving for at work. Maybe if you're in school, you have things you're striving for. We have goals. We have things we're looking at. Maybe you've got some things you want to accomplish in 2019. And as a church, as we look to the coming year, there are a great many things that we could look at. A year ago, we were beginning to look at uh, transforming and renovating portions of our building here and we did that we we did that beginning in march and we we transformed and we renovated the back portion of this building to put in a nursery and a preschool we transformed and renovated the back half of the older building across the street for a a youth area we saw some incredible things happen in that we we saw the money come in you guys through the power of our lord did some incredible things and we are standing here a year later having seen a lot of renovation and it all paid for and not a cent to be paid. We saw great things happen and things that we could look at. And we could, if we wanted to this morning, set out some goals and point out some things to look at in 2019. But our vision for 2019 is not a renovation. It's not a program. It's not a goal to accomplish. Our vision for 2019 is a God to worship. To behold our God. To see Him high lifted up. And to know that there are people in desperate need of His salvation so that they may also in turn worship the God of the universe. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15. We're going to begin with this one verse, and we're going to expand to some other portions of the chapter. But 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15. And He, that is our Lord Jesus Christ, and He died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage this morning, And as we find before our eyes any number of things to gaze upon this morning or in the coming year, Lord, may our attention be upon you. May our eyes see the light and the joy of our salvation. May our eyes behold the empty cross and the empty tomb. Lord, may our vision be you. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. I don't know if you know the name William Wilberforce. Some of you may know that name. William Wilberforce was born in 1759. He lived and died in the year 1833. He was a member of Parliament in London during the American Revolution. He was in Parliament as a young man at the age of uh, 19 years old. The world and culture that William Wilberforce lived in in London, we may think of the days gone by, we may think of that being a Christian nation and, and all that, but the, the world of London, England in seventeen late 1700s was a world that was shaped by some, what some historians call the Enlightenment. It was a time where the culture had largely begun to reject the God of the Bible, and they had begun to reject the name of Jesus. Though they believed that He existed, they believed that God existed. But if you ask most people of the Enlightenment, while they would have held to a morality that was based in a biblical morality, they wouldn't have actually believed that Jesus was the Son of God. And they would have looked down quite skeptically at those who did. They had rejected God as one who was personal and who was involved in human affairs. The result was that culture in England of that time in the Enlightenment of Europe, that Eric Metaxas, who was a, an author who has done a biography on William Wilberforce, describes the world in which that 25% of the women in London, 25%, one in four, were involved in prostitution, and the average age was 16. The world was one that charities did not exist. In fact, the prevailing idea was that if you were poor or somehow destitute or homeless or in some type of trouble, whether it be because you were sick or whether you just didn't have a job, that you were that way because God didn't like you and you were cursed. And if, God, if someone helped you, they were countering God's will. So you can imagine the desperation and the, the filth and the condition that many people lived in. It was a world where child labor was common. It was not, in fact, it was the norm for children five, six, seven years old to already be working 10 to 12 hour days in dangerous conditions. Hospitals were places you went to die, not to get well. Alcoholism was so rampant, it would make any alcoholism, alcoholism today seem tame in comparison. In fact, it was not uncommon for a majority of the people of Parliament to be drunk while meeting in Parliament. Can't explain some of the decisions they made. It was a culture that craved violence and spectacle. William Wilberforce was born into this world, or born into that culture. He was exposed to the gospel at a young age. His grandparents were Methodists. And he heard the gospel and became enthralled by it, but through his teenage years began to drift away from it as those around him began to dismiss and reject the gospel. He had been in Parliament for a couple of years, and he was taking along with his mother a trip to the south of France. He took along with him a, a gentleman by the name of Isaac Milner. Now, Isaac Milner and William Wilberforce were two visually opposite people. Isaac Milner was a man probably about 6'2 to 6'4. They describe him as a very large man, probably upwards of 300 pounds. He was a big dude that took up a big seat. William Wilberforce was about 5'3, 100 nothing pounds. In fact, he had one bout of illness where 
he actually got down to 76 pounds at five foot three. He was not very big. So you can imagine these two guys sitting next to each other. And as these two men began to talk, Isaac Milner was a well-respected uh, scientist and thinker of his day. As they began to talk about things, Isaac began to tell William about the gospel. And young Wilberforce came to faith in Christ. And he immediately began to ask himself, what does it mean to now live for Christ? He knew that he couldn't keep on going the way he was. He was known as a great party animal, if you will, that day. He knew he could no longer do that. He knew that coming to faith in Christ meant a change in how he lived. And he spent two years thinking through this process. And after two years, he came to this conclusion that God was calling him to live for Christ in the following ways. To change and to transform the culture he lived, and to work to abolish slavery. And so Wilberforce went to work. This five foot three, 115, 120-pound man went to work. And by the time we, in, in, at 1809, he, he started Parliament in the late 1780s, or I'm sorry, 1770s, and by 1807, 20 some odd years of work, the slave trade had been abolished. 1807, it was illegal, and England and much of Europe enforced a ban against the trading and the purchasing of slaves from Africa. 1833, three weeks before his death, England outlawed slavery altogether some 50 years before that would happen in the United States. But not only that, much of what we might take for granted today as far as rules against child labor, as far as the, the, the idea of charity or the, guy, the idea of helping out those who are less fortunate, the idea of hospitals that work, the idea of, of uh, reducing alcoholism, the idea of, of caring for your fellow man as part of our culture. Those things that today we take for granted finds its source in William Wilberforce. A man that, it's not overstating it to say, transformed Western culture. A man that most of us probably this morning have never even heard of. This was a man who decided he would live for Christ. What does it mean, as we look at verse 15 of this chapter, what does it mean to live our lives for Him? He died for all so that they who live, that's us, that they who live might no longer live for themselves, that we are called to no longer live for our own ideas, our own stuff, but to live on behalf of Him who died and rose again. What does that mean for us? What does that mean to be a, a mission statement of the church and a mission statement of our own personal lives? You know, if you talk about people saying, I want to live life to the fullest. I want to experience things. We have all things, kinds of things that might come into our mind. Maybe you want to go skydiving. Anybody want to go skydiving? <laughs> There's a handful. You want to live life to the fullest, right? You want to ex die. No, no, not <laughs> Live life. We, we have this idea of living, all caps. And we, we think of these 
Germanic experiences like traveling to parts of the world we've never been to or trying food we've never tried or jumping out of an airplane or bungee jumping. We, we have this idea of these dramatic experiences, living life to the fullest. Let me suggest this morning that living life to the fullest has nothing to do with these dramatic experiences that take your breath away. It has nothing to do with seeing a mountain or, or, or swimming the ocean. It's got nothing to do with jumping out of an airplane. That living life to the fullest means living your life for Christ. That's what it means to live your life to the fullest. What does that look like? What does that mean for us in the year 2019? I will say this, it might mean that you get uncomfortable. It might mean that you do things that you haven't done before. Let's look at this. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.15, He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. If we were to go earlier in this chapter, we would find Paul talking about a number of different things. I want to go back and uh, begin reading in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, as Paul writes this letter to the, to the believers in Corinth. Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. Paul, as he was writing this letter, we will go a few verses earlier, a few verses after, we will see a couple things happening. Paul had a long and complicated relationship with the church at Corinth, and we looked a little bit at that a year ago as we were going through the letter of 1 Corinthians. And one of the things that Paul was dealing with was he had some folks there in Corinth who had accused him of being, well, a little bit unstable. Paul had come to Corinth initially when he founded the church there, he had been in Athens before that. And when Paul had been in Athens, he had preached to the elite, to the academic and to the philosophers of the nation of Greece, and they had essentially laughed him out of town. It had not been what you might call a particularly successful endeavor. And so Paul shows up to Corinth somewhat discouraged and somewhat uh, tired after a, a difficult row of it, so to speak, in, in Athens. But God blessed the work there in Corinth, and God got that church beginning there, but there was a lot of difficulties there. And the claims that Paul was making that Christ was one who was crucified and had raised back to life was a problem for so many who had heard it. For the Romans and the Greeks of his day, the idea that a God, that a Savior, that someone you would hold up as an example, that that individual would have died on a cross was foolishness. The cross, in their eyes, was the ultimate example of humiliation. It was the most humiliating, embarrassing, and shameful way to die. Not to mention just being horrifically painful. And they would have laughed him out saying, you believe that your God got on a cross? That's the opposite of what a God would do. Now the Jews, much the same way. And on top of that, you put this idea that not only did he die on that cross, but he came back to life. Now that just boggles the mind. Who's going to believe that? That a dead man came back to life. And so Paul was, his sanity was questioned. His teaching was questioned. 
His sanity was questioned. We'd see that here. We're going to see that here in just a few moments. And yet Paul told the Greeks and Romans that strength and might comes not from armies or philosophy or great political power. It comes from a man who is humiliated on a cross. And Paul says he lives his life with this one. And in verse 7, so we find out, I think, the first part of this one, what it means to live your life for Christ. What does it mean to live my life for another? It begins with this. Verse 7, walk by faith, not by sight. What does it mean to walk by faith? Well, faith, first of all, let's understand this. Faith at first means simply this, to take another individual at their word. That's, that's all it really means. So if you have faith in someone's opinion, you're going to take what they say and, and follow it. So if you have a person that you trust, let's say when it comes to movies, I'll just pick an easy example. You say, they've seen the movie. They say, this movie is really worth watching. You say, okay, I believe you. I take you at your word. What do you go do? You go watch the movie, right? If somebody says, I went to that restaurant over there and I got sick. Don't go there. What do you do? You don't go there. That's called faith. You've, had, you've exercised faith. You have, you've followed their instructions. You took their word for something. So if I'm going to walk by faith in my relationship to Christ, all it means is I'm going to take the words that he said and I'm going to believe them and act accordingly. It's not overly complicated. It's not hard. It simply says, I believe what he said, and because of that, I'm going to follow the things he said. It's been a few days now since Christmas, and maybe some parents bought some toys. Have you ever bought some things for your kids that needed to be assembled? They were in the box, and the fun was assembling it and putting it together. Y'all ever done that? It takes faith to realize that tab A goes into slot B. And you're looking at it going, no, it doesn't. <laughs> Y'all been there? Faith is to take somebody at their word and to follow their instructions. So when we say we're going to walk by faith in Christ, it means that when he said he's the son of God, we believe that he is the son of God. That when he said he would die for our sins, we believe that. That when he said he would resurrect, we believe that. We take the things that he said from the Sermon on the Mount, to the day that he was ascending back into heaven on the Mount of Olives. We take all those words and we say, I believe what he said. To walk by faith means that the means of my life, the actions that I take, the, the decisions I make, the things I do, the priorities that I set, the, the way I decide, students, where do I go to college? What, what job, what career will I one day have? The process by making that decision is the the decisions about who to marry or who to date, young people, or how I will conduct myself at work or how I will, I will handle my finances, how I will parent or grandparent my children, how I'll spend the money that God has blessed me with. All these things are based upon the words of God. And I make those decisions through the, the lens of what He said. That's what it means to walk by faith. In the first few verses of this chapter, Paul speaks of this idea that 
being absent from God means being present here, and being present here means being absent from God, and that he would much rather be present with God. He said, life is going to be much better in presence with God. I'd rather be there. But he says, for right now, God's got me here. And he speaks of these two planes of existence, if you will, a spiritual one and an earthly one. And he says, this earthly life that you and I right now are are in the middle of, this earthly life is temporary. It lasts not very long, only a few years. Some of you have this idea that life is a long time. It tends to be the younger folks. (laughs) Many of us know that life goes by like that, doesn't it? And Jesus says that this life is, is, is not to be longed for. It's temporary. It's not our home. That the resurrection life will be the one that is eternal. And there will be a time, in addition to that, that we will all face Christ. You, I, everyone who's ever existed or will exist, who's ever lived, there will be a day when you and I and they will come face to face with Christ. And he will be in the role of judge. Those things are true. And so, if I'm going to walk by faith in Christ this morning, I need to understand in 2019 that I need to live my life with this truth in mind that the year in front of me, or however long of it I'm here, is temporary. The eternal is what will last, and I will, in fact, see him face to face one day. And every decision I make, everything I do, from how I spend my money to how I spend my time, needs that in front of it. It means also, by the way, that as I see the people around me, I see them through that same lens. So as I meet people, whether they be at Walmart, whether they be at work, whether they be neighbors, whether they be each other here on a Sunday morning, or some homeless guy begging for food at the exit, that I see them through the lens of God's Word. I I need to know His Word to do that, don't I? By the way, as we look at Christ, as we behold our God here in 2019, I want to invite you, on Wednesday nights, starting this coming Wednesday, we're going to begin a new study. And it's going to be on the attributes of God. That sounds kind of academic. Let me just break it down for you. We're going to take a night, and we're going to look at God's love. We're going to go look at. We're going to take another night, look at God's mercy. We're going to look at His majesty, His righteousness. We're going to spend the next several months looking at all these individual characteristics of God, so they give us this majestic, incredible picture of the God who created us. It will be an exciting thing. I, I want to invite you on Wednesday nights as we begin looking at the attributes of God, as we begin staring and looking at the One who we want to see above all else. So as I see the world through the eyes of the one who created me and the one who has saved me, I will see other people through the eyes of God and I will live for Him in my relationship to them. And that might mean things like going somewhere and telling somebody who doesn't know Him about Him. We pray for the nation of Guinea. I realize that the vast majority of us in this room will probably never step on the shores of Guinea and West Africa. Some of you might. But I realize the majority of us probably never will. But I guarantee you there will be a day when you and I will be worshiping our God face to face. 
where we will see Him in all His majesty and His glory, and we will be singing and worshiping Him side by side with somebody from Guinea. Now, I don't know about you, but that should be exciting. We're going to worship our Lord one day side by side with people from Russellville, with people from Little Rock, with people from London, England, with people from Conakry, Guinea, with people from China, and people from places like Iraq and Iran. And no more than we'll be able to ignore them there, we shouldn't be ignoring them here. So we will pray. And we will go or we will send. Because we will see them through the eyes of our Lord. We'll see ourselves properly. We, will, we are reminded each and every day, if, I am, if I'm walking by faith and I'm taking God's word to be true, I realize that I, I, Brett Cottrell, pastor, am a horrific sinner before God, deserving of nothing but fire and damnation. That's who your pastor is. I am, a, I am a man who, separate from God, has a corrupted mind and an evil soul who was in desperate need of the grace and the mercy of God. And just because I was born in Fayetteville, Arkansas, to a man who would be a pastor, that meant nothing in my relationship to God other than God loved me and blessed me enough to be in a home that introduced me to Him. It means every one of you is in that same boat. We can look around this room and see nobody worth God's time. And I can see the world in the same way. And except this, not only do I see in my own heart because God says I was this evil, corrupt man and that you are those evil, corrupt people, but I also recognize this, that the Bible says God loved us so much. He didn't leave us like that. And He took the price of our sin and our evil, and our rebellion upon Him, and took it upon Himself. And offered you and I redemption and salvation. And guess what? He offered it to them as well. Some of them just don't know it yet. So if I'm going to live my life for Him, if I'm going to walk by faith, I need to take Him at His word when He describes me, when He describes them, and then describes what He has done. By the way, it is God's intention. Some of his last words here on earth before he ascended into heaven, his last words said, go and make disciples. You know what that means for us? That we are to go and make disciples. And he didn't say go and make disciples except for those of you who are in London, Arkansas. You don't have to worry about that 2,000 years from now. He didn't say that. He didn't say go and make disciples except you don't have to go very far. Just go over here. He didn't say that either. He said to everyone, go into all the world. So that means that while God has placed us in London, Arkansas, and in the River Valley, and we have a, we have a job to do here and now. now don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not walking past that. We, are, we have an obligation to be a, a, a presence of God in the lives of the people right around us. It, doesn't, it also means that we can't ignore the rest of the world. We get to do both, not either or. It's both and. That's what it means to walk by faith. By the way, 2019, we tentatively have, this is going to be fun, by the way, four mission trips planned. Okay? Now, 
some of you know that we have be, we, Alan and the youth group have been going up to Chicago for the last four, four or five years, and we have entered into a more, a more a formal partnership with uh, Resurrection Church and Dave Andreessen up there in Chicago, and we will be taking three trips there this year. The youth will be taking that trip, but we're going to take two other trips, one in the spring. We're going to be taking a construction trip up there. Uh, so guys, be thinking about this. They, the building they're meeting in, they get to meet in, if they help take care of the building, and the building has some needs. So we're going to be going out there probably sometime late April, early May, to do some work on the building so they can continue to have a place to meet. We're, probably, we're going to go up in probably late September, early October, about that time frame, to go up and do some ministry in the church itself. Now, by the way, these are not youth trips. These are for us as a church, as we partner with this church plant in Chicago. And I know the way we talked about, we tentatively had one for January. We had to scrub it, but it's our goal to go to Guinea later on this year as well, perhaps in the late fall. So that's at least four mission trips this year. Because as we look at Christ, what else can we do? Because the Christ who rules us here, the Christ that presents himself here, the, the Christ that we say, look at and behold, the we sing those words, all hail the power. And in the middle of that song, it talks about believers from all around the world. How could we not want to be part of that? So because God has, because we have a vision of who God is, we go. I want us to look over here a little bit later on in this chapter. As we continue to look at what it means to, to live for Christ. Uh, look at um, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls, or you may have the word compels us, having concluded that some that want that this one who died for all, therefore all have died. The love of Christ controls us, Paul says. What does it mean to, to live for him? It means to walk by faith, and it means to be under control of the love of Christ. To know His love is not merely to receive God's salvation and to celebrate what God has done. It means to go and to persuade others as well. If we were to start in the book of Genesis, we would see from the beginning of God's activity in history that He has always been a going and sending God. He's always been a missionary God. If you will. It's part of His character. In fact, when God called Abraham and said, I'm going to make a great people out of you, and he makes a covenant later on with the nation of Israel as it exists, one of their primary functions was to be a witness and an example to the nations. That their unique worship of the one true God, that their unique lifestyle, that their unique markings would make them an object of, of a of watching from the rest of the world and would point the rest of the world to God. Now, what happened instead was Israel took this special calling of God and instead of using it to point the rest of the world to Yahweh, they took it and said, look at us. They took the privilege and the call and the salvation of God upon them and said, look at us, how privileged we are. And they pointed people to themselves and not to God. We have to be very careful, church, that we don't take the salvation of God and look at it and say, look how good we are. Instead of pointing the world to the one who saved us. 
God is a sending God. He sent Israel. They worshiped other gods and pointed people to themselves. And so God has called us and given us that assignment. To know God is to be a sending God and a going church. Paul also says here, verse 13, I want to point out verse 13. I mentioned that there were some people who were questioning Paul's sanity, if you will, or mental stability. I'm not going to ask you, I mean, people have questioned your mental stability. That's just between you and God. I'll, I'll, I'll let you just... <laughs> verse 13, he says this. If we are beside ourselves, and that, you know, sometimes if you talk about somebody who's being beside themselves is not quite, you know, that's what he's talking about. If we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we are of sound mind, it's for you. He's talking about the accusations and says, listen, if I'm crazy, then I'm crazy for God. It's all right. Because we know that what God considers to be, what this world considers to be foolishness, God calls his wisdom. To live for him and to walk by faith, take him at his word, to be controlled by his love and persuading and telling others. Let me suggest also it means joy in the salvation. As you read through all this stuff, you read through 2 Corinthians and read through this passage, you will sense in it and see in it a joy in Paul as he recounts what God has done for him. He's not worried, and he's talking about the mental stability there, he's not worried that as he worships what somebody else might think. He's not worried as he relates to God about what somebody else might think of him because he worships God. He's not worried about those people in Athens who think the idea of a cross and resurrection is foolishness. Paul's not worried about that. He's just simply going to live for Christ regardless. God has blessed us as a church with a great many things. He's blessed us with buildings, He's blessed us with resources. We get things like heat and air. We have indoor plumbing. Don't take that for granted. We get together together from time to time and have good meals. We have a group of people who love one another. And all these things are great things and they're things that are cool to celebrate and acknowledge. But we this morning and in 2019 do not need to be a church founded upon a nice building. The point of our bragging should not be our great fellowships or piles of dessert when we get together. You know, I do brag on that a little bit. The point of pride for our church should not be our great children or youth programs or our music or anything else. It's Jesus Christ. Alan mentioned the cross conference. I was able to listen to a couple of the messages online as they were there. A couple of things came out. I don't remember who this one, who this quote was, Alan. I think I, I think I saw you put it on Facebook. You know, so often, and I, I mean, I fall victim to this sometimes. We were talking in staff meetings, and we're talking about planning for the church, and we say we need to get these group of people here. We need to get these people here. These group of people is important here. We need to do this. We need to do that. And if we're not careful, we can pin the future of the church or the health of the church on 
some of us or some people out there. There were 7,018 to 25-year-olds at this conference that they attended in Louisville, Kentucky this week. And it might have been Piper, I'm not sure, John Piper made the comment to them and I would make the comment to us. The future of the church is not based upon you. It's based upon Jesus. The health of First Baptist London. This church's future will not be determined by my charisma. And aren't you thankful for that? It will not be determined by our great music. Sorry, Brady. It will not be determined by this beautiful building that we sit in. It will not be determined by the demographics of the River Valley. The future of this church is not based upon me or you. The future of this church is based upon our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, our vision for 2019 isn't a program, it's not a building program, it's not even the mission trips I talked about. The vision for the church of 2019 is not any of this stuff. It's not fundraising, it's not fellowships, it's not the order of worship. The vision for 2019 is the God of the universe and our Savior, Jesus Christ. 